welcome those of you who are coming in to Daring Dialogues. I am your host tonight, Shante Charles. We're going to dive uh, into two topics tonight. We're going back to the topic of the King James Version of the Bible. And um, we are now moving into chapter 5 of the book that we're reading called God's Secretaries and the Making of the King James Bible. Unfortunately, there are millions of people who don't realize how much of what they're reading, especially from the King James Version, (laughs) is literally his version. So we're going to talk about that tonight. We'll get into a little bit of that tonight um, and the forces behind his version. Then we're going to hop into White Too Long by Robert P. Jones, where we're continuing the conversation about the white Christian shuffle and uh, the long road to reckoning with racism and white supremacy in America, but especially in the Western American church. So those are our two topics tonight, and I hope that you will listen in, and uh, if you have some feedback or some information you want to share, you can uh, send us some comments. Uh, But you know, we do delete and block over here, so if you're being ridiculous and unnecessary, Just understand you'll be blocked and banned from this page. (laughs) Uh, We do take reasonable inquiries and questions, but we don't tolerate disrespect here. So maybe some people tolerate it in their lives, but we don't do that over here. We respect each and every person, and we may have differences of opinion, but um, difference of opinion is not the same as you don't believe I have the right to exist. That's not a difference of opinion. That's something entirely different. So, uh, here's the book. For those of you who are interested in it, it's God's Secretaries, The Making of the King James Bible. It can probably be found at your local library. Chapter 5. I am for the medium in all things. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, most of us, if you grew up probably in a, or, or attended a Pentecostal setting, at some point you probably heard that scripture, Hebrews 4 and 12. The new Jacobian atmosphere of tolerance, discussion, and openness set within a frame of a new kind of royal, gilded, fatherly divinity, had begun to have its effect. So now that the rules have been set as to the translation, this is where we are moving forward now. A flood of English Roman Catholics started to return from the European continent. In the summer of 1603, a pair of futile, ill-conceived, and half-related plots by Catholic extremists had been foiled when English Catholics loyal to James had betrayed them. The plotters and their friends were the lunatic fringe of Catholic opinion, and the mainstream, including the Jesuits, considered the plots impudent folly. Impudent because they threatened the establishment of order in England, foolish because persuasion and influence, the feigning, suing, and such like, at which the age excelled, was clearly the route to success. It soon emerged that the Jesuits themselves had betrayed the plotters to the Privy Council, having more allegiance to their own future prospects than to their co-religionists. James was filled with gratitude. 
Although the Jesuit betrayal of the plots was probably the result of a power struggle between different groups of English Catholics, the effect was precisely the kind of inclusive politics James had always dreamed of. Here were Catholics displaying allegiance to a declaredly Protestant Rome. It was a new world order, an ironic wholeness embracing them all. James's response was to give them a break. For a year, they would no longer have to pay the 20 francs a month fine, which was the Elizabethan penalty for not attending church. Did you know that? It was a fine for not attending church. Let's not get any ideas over here, America. <laughs> the new age might be dawning. The state's reaction to the two plots is a map of the age. The plotters themselves were ruthlessly and uncompromisingly suppressed. Some were executed, others were left to fester in the tower. They included Robert Cecil's long-standing enemy, Sir Walter Raleigh, who by modern standards of evidence was clearly not guilty of involvement in either plot. But he was a rival to Cecil and as much and as such as was ruthlessly removed from the scene ridiculed and abused by the Crown lawyers at a show trial in Winchester and condemned, finally, to 17 years of imprisonment. Beyond the guilty and the dangerous, however, James held out the prospect of an all-encompassing embrace to anyone and anything that might fall within the dream of national community. Destroy the extremists, whether Catholic plotters or those Puritans who could not conform to the habits of the Church of England, embrace a broad stretch of middle ground. That is the heart of all Jacobian policy. It is what any well-managed civilized government would do. And of that middle ground, the new Bible was to become both the expression and the symbol, the code and guidebook to a rich, majestic, and holy kingdom. In the summer and autumn of 1604, after Parliament had been prorogued, both parts of the strategy came into play. Bancroft and at times James himself, goading on his bishops, began to harry those Puritans who would not sign up to the idea that the surplus and the cross, the confirmation, the use of rings and weddings, and all these other remnants of symbolic religion in the English church were perfectly good and holy practices. Those who would not sign or subscribe as the word at the time went were expelled. A total of about 80 ministers from a body of about 8,000. 99% of the Church of England, in other words, thought conformity was the better path. Among the 1% who did not were those who would in time become the leaders of the Pilgrim Fathers. At the same time, Bancroft began to hire the men for the great translation, and here it was a breath and inclusiveness which dictated the choice. The first Westminster company, charged with translating the first books of the Bible, had Lancelot Andrews, Dean of Westminster Abbey, as its director. He was known as the angel in the pulpit, a man more versed in modern and ancient tongues than any other in England who could serve, as it was thought, as interpreter general at the day of judgment, but he had other skills and another track record, which confirmed him as a member of the core establishment 
and recommended him to Bancroft and the King. He had been used before in important political work some 15 years earlier when Bancroft was working for Whitgift, trying to root out separatist congregations in London. Andrews, who was then in his mid-30s, had already recognized as the coming man, as the cleverest preacher in England, could be relied on to do Bancroft's work for him. Highly detailed accounts survive of what he did for the ecclesiastical establishment, a representation of, in other words, of what Bancroft would have known of him, the grounds on which he chose him as one of the principal translators. Once again, it is not a dignified picture. His governing qualities are those of a man who knows how to exercise power. Through the second half of the 1580s and the more extreme separatist Puritans who considered each congregation a self-sufficient church of Christ, yeah, <laughs> became the target of a campaign led by Bancroft. They were to be found in private houses all around London, holding private conventions in which their inspirational preachers were, it was reported to Bancroft, esteemed as gods. Bancroft, who in another life would clearly have been an excellent detective, had his spies in place. As a central player in the Crown establishment, he would have had an array of inducements to hand. Money, prospects, threats, the persuasive words of a man with access to power. Those tools gave him access to all kinds of secret meetings. After the minister has saluted everyone, both man and woman, into their chamber, one report of such a separatist meeting described was shocked at its impropriety. A large table was gathered prepared for the purpose, he taking the chair at the end, the rest sitting down everyone in order, the minister himself having received communion in both bread and wine which is left, passing down every man without more ado in his own. So they were against anybody who was leading a ministry, anybody who was leading a meeting that did not line up with the national religious standard. They wanted to know who these people were that were leading these meetings who had the audacity to think that they could hear for God, from God for themselves. They wanted to know who these people were. And so they sent spies into their midst to figure out how many of these secret congregations, as they called them, were actually happening. The state church could not tolerate the freedom or the priestlessness of such behavior. Let me say that again. The state church could not tolerate the freedom or the priestlessness of such behavior. They did not believe in the priesthood of all believers. They believed in the priesthood of the elite. Many separatists, and they were overwhelmingly young, idealistic people, a tiny minority, perhaps no more than a couple of hundred in England as a whole, fled to the Netherlands, but others were arrested. And eventually some 52 were held for long periods in the string of hideous London jails called the Clink, the Gatehouse, the Fleet, 
Newgate, Counter Wood Street, Counter Poultry, Ridewell, and the White Lion. Some of the prisoners shut in the most noisome and vilest dungeons without beds or so much as straw to lie upon. And all this without once producing them to any Christian trial where they might have place given them to defend themselves. One of them, the 18-year-old Roger Waters, was kept in irons for more than a year. Their leaders, honest, fierce men, the spiritual forebears of the future Massachusetts colonists, were to be interrogated or conversed with. The meetings were known among the separatists themselves as Spanish conferences. By the more brilliant and trustworthy members of the Church of England, Andrews was at their head. Bancroft instructed him to interrogate Henry Barrow, the leading separatist who had been arrested in 1587 and kept in the fleet. So the head of the translators that they selected was a man who could quote unquote, get the job done. And what was that job? That job was to keep people in line. That job was to suppress anyone who was going against what the establishment wanted religion to sound like, be like, look like, and symbolize. I'll just leave you with that thought for that book. We're moving into now White Too Long by Robert P. Jones. And we're looking at uh, his section on the white Christian shuffle. In this particular section, he is talking about someone who is still living and still a contemporary. Matter of fact, I just saw his uh, Twitter timeline the other day. So I know that um, all of this voice recognition software is uh, tracking us because he wasn't on my Twitter radar before, but all of a sudden now he is. And his name is Albert Muller. After the 2015 South Carolina church shooting, which involved uh, Dylan Roof murdering nine worshipers at a historic black South Carolina church, Muller posted his boldly titled response, quote, the heresy of racial superiority, confronting the past and confronting the truth. The piece began strongly defining heresy as an era so important that those who believe it must be considered to have abandoned the faith. Muller flatly named the idea of racial superiority as a Christian heresy. He declared that Ruth's actions were a hideous demonstration of the deadly power of this heresy. Muller also declared directly that one cannot simultaneously hold on to an ideology of racial superiority and rightly present the gospel of Jesus Christ or defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And he directed indirectly connected the dots between the white superiority that had animated the Southern Baptist Convention's founding and contemporary racial violence. He states, the Southern Baptist Convention was not only founded by slaveholders, it was founded by men who held to the ideology of racial superiority and who bathed that ideology in scandalous theological argument. We bear the burden of that history to this day. Racial superiority is a sin as old as Genesis and as contemporary as the killings in Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston. 
The ideology of racial superiority is not only sinful, it is deadly. And in 2018, the seminary's report on the legacy of slavery and racism in the history of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which Muller had commissioned, noted this. The founding faculty of this school, all four of them, were deeply involved in slavery and deeply complicit in the defense of slavery. Many of their successors on this faculty throughout the period of Reconstruction and well into the 20th century advocated segregation, the inferiority of African Americans, and openly embraced the ideology of the lost cause of Southern slavery. What we knew in generalities, we now know in detail. The report is fairly thorough in its treatment of white supremacist views of the four founding faculty of the seminary, noting that they all owned a significant number of slaves, or the enslaved, some on multiple plantations and in multiple states. It notes that one of them, James P. Boyce, who served as the seminary's first president, was a chaplain to the Confederate Army who described himself in a letter to his brother-in-law as an ultra-pro-slavery man. It highlights John Broaddus's leadership in drafting and presenting the articles at the 1863 Southern Baptist Convention, pledging the denomination's support for the Confederacy. It does fail to fully respond and represent his judgments about the capabilities of African Americans, which he stated, the great mass of them belong to a very low grade of humanity. The report documents the white supremacist views of Basil Manley Jr., son of the seminary's founding president, and his desire to reestablish white political control during Reconstruction. Writing to his wife, Sarah, after the Civil War, for example, he declared that the presence of freed slaves was an incubus and a plague upon Greenville, and that it might become a desirable place of residence if it could be cleared of Negroes and establish a system of free schools. And the report notes that in an 1866 interview with a New York newspaper after the close of the war, the fourth founder, William Williams, declared that even though slavery was abolished, we still maintain that slaveholding is morally right. Muller even asked the right ultimate question in his cover letter to the seminary report. Eventually, the questions come home. How could our founders, James P. Boyce, John Broaddus, Basil Manley Jr., and William Williams serve as such defenders of biblical truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the confessional convictions of this seminary, and at the same time own human beings as enslaved, based on an ideology of race, and defend American slavery as an institution? So far, so good. But while in each case, Muller's logic would seem to have painted the seminary into a corner of accountability, he consistently finds a way out of this accountability, interspersing indictments with a quick two-step of qualifications and evasions. In the 2015 outline article, Muller declared, I gladly stand with the founders of the Southern Baptist Convention and the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He lauds them as titans of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But how can these men both be saints and heretics? Follow the footwork. Although Muller notes that both Boyce and Broaddus served as chaplains for the Confederate Army, he also defends them as, quote, consummate Christian gentlemen, given the culture of their day. He also makes the outlandish assertion 
that each of these men would have been horrified, I am certain, by any act of violence against any person. This is plainly false, since the Manleys were known to have theologically defended, tolerated, and on occasion ordered their slaves to be beaten. Beyond even all of this rhetorical maneuvering, however, is a strategy of marginalizing the central character. The Reverend Dr. Basil Manley, Sr. Muller omits any mention of the Sr. Manley in his 2015 article. While there is a longer treatment of Manley buried in the body of the 2018 report, Muller makes no mention of him in his three-page cover letter, nor is there any reference to Manley in the report's four-page, 13-bullet executive summary. Instead, both focus the critical spotlight on the four founding faculty members, leaving the seminary's founding institutional architect and board president in the shadows. By all reasonable applications of Muller's own criteria, the verdict should be that the founders of the SBC and the seminary, including the pivotal Basil Manley Sr., were indeed slaveholding theological apologists of white supremacy and therefore heretics. Yet Muller ultimately absolves them of responsibility and accountability, along with himself and contemporary Southern Baptists, by citing mitigating circumstances and continuing to hold on to a theology cultivated and passed down by these very founders that frees contemporary white Christians from any responsibility beyond lament and apology. Finally, Muller makes a sweeping excuse that is simply absurd. So far as I can tell, no one ever confronted the founders of the Southern Baptist Convention and the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary with the brutal reality of what they were doing, believing, and teaching in this regard. Yet, Basil Manley Sr., for example, was deeply involved in the abolitionist debates and came to prominence precisely because in the face of public challenge to his views, he was an unflinching religious defender of shadow slavery, including theological defenses of brutal practices such as whipping slaves and selling them even if it broke up their families. In his 2015 article, Muller declared, we must repent and seek to confront and remove every stain of racial superiority that remains. Yet in the cover letter to the report, he distances himself from current action required by this past with the following theological flourish. We must repent of our own sins. We cannot repent for the dead. One foot forward, one shuffle back. Notably following the release of the 2018 report, Muller, sorry, Muller and Southern Seminary have taken no consequential steps to act on their own weighty conclusions. While both the 2015 article and the full 2018 report are available on the seminary's website, there has been no attempt to update the biological and biographical entries of these four founding faculty members with these new revelations on the pages of the site. The biographical page describing Broadus, for example, makes only a passing reference to the Civil War, no reference to his support for slavery, and closes with this summary. Broadus dedicated his life to teaching Southern Baptist ministers 
how to have a passion for biblical, doctrinal, and vibrant preaching in order to bring glory to the name of Christ. This inaction is also visible on the seminary grounds. Today, the campus features older buildings named for these founders. James P. Boyce Library, Manly Hall, and a dormitory. But it also contains newer buildings dedicated to their legacies by Muller himself, just a handful of years after this historic apology. Boyce College, which opened in 1998, grants undergraduate degrees in biblical studies. And Broadus Chapel, which opened in 1999, serves as a 200-seat venue that's used for worship, weddings, lectures, and a preaching lab. In his 2015 article, Muller says three separate times that he will not consider removing the names of these men who are honored on the seminary's buildings, but will, quote, stand without apology with the founders and their affirmation of Baptist orthodoxy. His cover letter accompanying the 2018 report doubles down on his intention to preserve these slaveholders' names on the school buildings. In light of the burdens of history, some schools hasten to remove names, announce plans, and declare moral superiority. That is not what I intend to do, nor do I believe that to be what the Southern Baptist Convention would have us do. We do not evaluate our Christian forebears from a position of our own moral innocence. Christians know that there is no such innocence, he writes, but we must judge even as we will be judged by the unchanging word of God and deposit of biblical truth. Consistent with our theology and the demands of truth, we will not attempt to rewrite the past, nor can we unwrite the past. Instead, we will write the truth as best we can know it. We will tell the story in full and not hide. By God's grace, we will hold without compromise to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Yet, that's exactly what he's doing. <laughs> he's not reckoning with the truth. In May 2019, Muller's response to a petition from a coalition of black and white local ministers in Louisville demonstrated the limits of their concept of repentance. Prompted by the seminary's report, lamenting its slaveholding and white supremacist roots, the group suggested that Southern could make an act of repentance and repair for their role in crafting a moral and biblical defense of slavery. Specifically, they suggested that Southern could gift a biblical tithe, 10% of its nearly $1 billion endowment to Simmons College of Kentucky, a nearby historically black Christian college. Muller's response was unyielding. We do not believe that financial reparations are the appropriate response. I've highlighted these responses and non-responses to the legacy of racism and white supremacy by Southern Baptists, not because they are extraordinary, but because they are typical of a self-protectionist rhetorical strategy that white Christians often deploy too often to give the appearance of accountability while shoring up the status quo of white supremacy. So next week we'll talk about understanding white supremacy's presence beyond Southern evangelicalism. As recently shown in a letter that went out to another preacher, <laughs> a black pastor, and I will caveat it 
by saying that after doing some research, uh, apparently this same pastor who was, you know, addressed in such a demeaning and harsh way for his race, he apparently had been doing some addressing and demeaning of others based on gender and sexuality. And so a lot of people are looking at both of those letters and saying both of them come from in a wrong place, an inappropriate place. But more on that next week. This has been my talk for tonight. And if you would like to join in, you can type I am in in the comment section and I will bring you on. If you are listening by Anchor FM, I want to thank you for your time and attention. And we'll see you on Monday. Take care.